Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. All right, guys, we're on HPO podcast number, what are we on, 80? This is like 80? I think this is 81. 81, damn. Almost, almost <laughs> a year, right? Zach, we're coming up on a year. I think then we start last, was it March or April we started last year? I think we recorded our first four episodes in March and then started releasing them at the end of March, early April, if I'm not so we're, mistaken. We're, we're just shy of a, we're just shy of a, a year. And we've got, we're, we're pushing up to a million downloads. I think we're not far from there. So we'll be hitting that probably with the YouTube and the lips and all that stuff in the near future. So uh, we've got Morgan... Hifner. I'm not going to pronounce the F because he just taught me not to do that. Morgan is up in uh, the Seattle area. And, and the reason I, I asked him on was just because he had some really good insight into uric acid, which I think is, you know, I just want to flesh that out a little more. Um, Morgan, thank you for coming on. Just tell us a little bit about your, your background just for, you know, five minutes or so so we know who you are and, and, and then we can, we can kind of get into some of this stuff. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I am, uh, I'm, yeah, I live in Bellingham, Washington, which is just a little bit north of Seattle. And, you know, I uh, am a Washington State registered nutritionist. I went and got my master's at Bastyr University, which is close to Seattle as well. Um, and, yeah, I just, nutrition has been a passion of mine for a long time, probably since I was, you know, 18 years old. Um, and I just uh really like investigating certain things related to nutrition and so what um you know what 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 made you so interested in it why why nutrition you know what's 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 the drive there yeah well i think what really kicked off that interest was uh my dad got diagnosed with cancer when i was well he off and on throughout my childhood it was you know constantly coming back going into remission stuff like that and I think by the time I was, you know, getting a little bit older, I was, I wanted to know more about why or what could be done about it. Cause it just sort of seemed like, I mean, and I think anytime people have something like that, that happens to them or something that happens to their, you know, loved one, they really, they want to know why or what they can do about it. And I think to me, the thing that I really latched on to was like maybe the role of, of a, of a poor diet that may have at least contributed to to that because I, I think growing up you know we didn't have uh, a very good very good dietary habits um, and so I just started reading up on on nutrition and I felt like that was that became a real passion of mine yeah it, it kind of seems like with uh, <clears throat> with nutrition especially when you get into some of the like the real deep dive stuff. It's like the two polar ends of the spectrum are the ones that really try to dive into how food affects the way you feel. And like the one side of the spectrum is folks trying to push their bodies to the limit for whatever reason. Um, and the other side is like, they have some, some situation happen where they're, they're, 
way less than the average or way less than ideal. And then they start looking for ways to kind of fix things through nutrition and stuff when standard medicine maybe doesn't, doesn't do that for them or puts them into a position where they're not, they're not feeling optimal. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, that's true. People come from different, different angles. Um, Cause right. You're the, you're the ultra marathoner. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm fighting the uphill battle in what I do, I guess. So <laughs> put your body through enough, enough torture and uh, you have to pay attention to what you're eating to kind of feel good. And you know, that's actually one of the kind of running jokes I always have because people will look at my training volume and they'll be like, well, you can eat whatever you want. I'll be like, yeah, you know, actually when I'm training this hard, I can eat whatever I want because if I want to feel good doing it and recover, I have to be pretty on top of that type of stuff. Morgan, let, you know, one of the things, you know, one of the reasons I, I, I was interested in talking to you is, you know, I saw a series of posts you put up on Twitter regarding, you know, rethinking uric acid. And, you know, we think of uric acid, you know, we certainly know it's associated with gout. You know, it's a product of purine metabolism and purines are primarily base parasitic and DNA, adenosine and guanine typically, and they're, they're broken down and, and turned into, well, they're basically turned into uric acid. And, and, and we, you know, see that showing up in association with a lot of disease states. You know, some people consider it as a marker of inflammation. Uh, you know, certainly if it's elevated in, in gout, which it often is, you know, the, the, the go-to therapy is to lower the uric acid by all means possible. Um, interestingly, I've seen people on what I would consider high purine diets, you know, meat heavy diets, uh, with elevated uric acids many times, and they don't seem to get gout. Uh, and so I think, you know, you, and this is a topic that a lot of people just assume as a physician, I just, you know, uric acid is bad, you know, and, and we don't want uric acid. And so that is kind of the prevailing um, thought and, and quite honestly, most of the, and, 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 and I think you seem to indicate that perhaps it's not necessarily, it's a marker of something going on, not necessarily a causative agent. I think we see a lot of that now in medicine with a lot of different, you know, biomarkers that we have and we don't really, I don't think we really understand the relationship and we tend to attribute causality Right. To things that are just associations. So can you talk a little bit about uric acid and, and just kind of what led you to, to, to even wonder about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that you kind of what you were touching on, it's pretty common for people in, in various health communities to kind of latch on to biomarkers um, sort of largely because they're associated with disease and assume that they therefore cause the disease. Um, I think you see that with a lot of, a lot of biomarkers, I would argue, you know, homocysteine and uh, even low HDL, um, and then more recently, TMAO are all sort of biomarkers that people kind of assume implicate, you know, are implicated in disease rather than just like appreciating the context in which you, you would find those things. Um, and I think the same is, is true of, uh, of uric acid, at least like beyond gout. Um, because yeah, uric acid is often found associated with, uh, hypertension and insulin resistance. And then the, oftentimes the diseases that are associated with those things like our cardiovascular disease. And so I think some people made the, you know, somewhat reasonable jump to, well, maybe uric acid is causing those, um, those conditions, but yeah, that's not really my interpretation. I think I kind of was curious about that line of thinking, especially because some people are really adamant that uric acid is, is not just like 
an important part of that, but like a key role um, that it is, you know, one of the main factors driving things like insulin resistance. And I kind of came away from my reading of the evidence feeling like that it's, it's not just innocent, but if anything might be like protecting the body um, or at the very least, it's something that is, yeah, the body is trying to use to maintain sort of homeostasis. Um, but yeah, so I think uh, there's a few basic pieces of evidence that make me think, you know, uric acid is uh, potentially innocent of causing things like insulin resistance and high blood pressure. There's, uh, there's something called inosine, um, and you, it's used as a supplement and it increases uric acid. That's often sometimes why it's given as a supplement to increase uric acid. Um, and in studies lasting like a year, two years, it doesn't seem like it affects people's blood sugar or their blood pressure in a negative way, which seems like it, it would indicate that uric acid is not a significant driver of those conditions. Um, and I think there are other, other lines of evidence that make me think, you know, uric acid isn't this villain, uh, at least, I mean, independently of, of gout, which I do think it plays a role in, obviously. Hey, hey Morgan, you had posted something along those lines on Twitter a couple of weeks ago that I saw that I thought was interesting. And it was that, like, I think it was a study from almost 100 years ago, but it was looking at like multi-day fasting and how that elevates uric acid. Is that kind of part of how you come to some of those conclusions? If we're assuming like in the midst of a fast, the uric acid is, is elevated, then, you know, you're likely not going to be seeing big insulin spikes and things like that during that, that prolonged fast. Uh, that's sort of something I came across later. And I actually don't think it's quite this. Uh, it's quite the same phenomenon. I think, so yeah, there, there's a study that I, I found as old as from like 1920s that found that fasting, basically eating nothing for several days caused uric acid levels to rise pretty significantly. And what it seems like they found out later that was driving this was a significant rise in ketone levels. Um, and I think the mechanism is generally agreed as ketones uh, are interfering with uric acid excretion. Um, and so, I mean, as far as I think uric acid might be something that rises to deal with oxidative stress, but I don't think that's the only reason that you would see rises. I think you could think of that as like uh, physiological rises versus just kind of consequential rises with higher ketone levels. Hey, Morgan, um, I think this is something that I, my understanding, uric acid is an antioxidant and it is one of the most abundant antioxidants we have in our body. And so it does have a role in what you're talking about mitigating oxidative stress. And I think that's people, people immediately think uric acid, therefore bad, but it, what is the role of uric acid? Right. Yeah. I think that's an important point. Uh, uric acid is, I mean, depend, it depends on how you're measuring it, but it's one of the most important antioxidants in the, in the body and in the bloodstream. Yeah. I don't think people think of it as often. You might think of vitamin C or vitamin E or even the endogenous ones like glutathione as the antioxidants that are important, but I think uric acid definitely deserves a mention. You know, there was a, a study a while back where they, uh, this research group basically had a, a form of this enzyme that humans no longer have called urate oxid oxidase, and it breaks down uric acid, and it's why humans have higher levels of uric acid than most other animals, because uh, 
we don't have a functioning version of this enzyme. But they basically infused it into people and found that it dropped their uric acid levels to almost nothing. And their oxidative stress levels um, rose. So I think that was a pretty good evidence of the, of the role that, you know, uric acid is playing. And I think that that um, is, there's also sort of in, in uh, indirect evidence that you see uric acid levels rising in all these states where ox you'd also expect oxidative stress to rise. Um, so obviously, th you know, things like insulin resistance, but also, um, you know, lead poisoning or lead toxicity in you know, coal miners and people exposed to lead, you often see higher uric acid levels. And then just uh, from like dietary perspectives, if you, uh, you know, overfeed people with refined carbohydrates, you often see in studies that that causes their uric acid levels to rise. One of the things that, you know, you know, you mentioned gout, and obviously we know that the uric acid participates into these negative bi negatively biberfringin crystals that we see in joints, and, I, and I've operated on people with gout and taken out gouty tophies out of their skin. It looks like a big blob of toothpaste when you cut them open. Um, you know, we know that uric acid can precipitate. Now, the, the interesting thing is there are people, and I can't remember the exact units on gout, but typically they, they want to below six, and I can't remember the reference, you know, if it's milligrams per deciliter. I'm not sure the exact number on that, but it's six is what the target is for gout therapy. But there's people out there with, with uric acid levels well in excess of that that don't get gout. And so when you look at some of the other associations with gout, we certainly see the chronic inflammation uh, markers are up. We, we certainly see hyperinsulinemia being elevated in gout patients. So the question becomes, you know, kind of like we, some of us are looking at cholesterol. Gout, uric acid is a necessary component of gout, but at the same time, it's not the only thing. It's not, you know, you, you have to have other things in place. And so uh, that's one thing going on. Would you comment on that? That's certainly something I wish I kind of had a better idea of. I mean, it sounds like there's, there's some reason to think that there are other factors going on that, that cause the crystals to form beyond just, you know, solute concentration. Um, I mean, and honestly, I'm not, I'm not sure what that is. I do know that it does seem like, um, there are certain certain conditions or certain like times when gout might be less painful so you might have the same kind of crystals going on and obviously you know you can uh, experience less of that inflammation if depending on you know the possibly like the factors associated with the inflammation but but yeah that's a good question and not one that I I really think I understand yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting, you know, when you talked about, you know, people where, where ketones will, will raise levels of uric acid, and, and Zach and I are, are kind of uh, seeing a lot of people that, that go on ketogenic style diets, and we'll often see their uric acid rise, you know, particularly, particularly as they are excreting more and more ketones, they tend to be not efficient at utilizing them. And so sometimes people that are already predisposed to gout, and I would, I would posit those, pay, those people are probably metabolically compromised, perhaps they have underlying inflammation, perhaps they have, uh, you know, hyperinsulinemia. And, and in those situations, sometimes they'll see a flare-up of gout, but then with time, as they improve their metabolic indices, uh, their gout symptoms tend to go away, which is kind of interesting to see. I saw, you know, one of the, one of the papers you looked at or, or one of the lines thought you'd looked at was a relationship between 
uh, multiple sclerosis and uric acid. Can you comment a little bit on that? Because I thought that was a very interesting relationship. Yeah, that is an interesting observation. I think one of the papers I found claimed to have looked at millions of people and it said basically that gout and multiple sclerosis are essentially uh, mutually exclusive. So you, you almost never see somebody with uric acid levels high enough to get gout also with multiple sclerosis. And so I think a lot of, a lot of folks have proposed that maybe uric acid is protective in multiple sclerosis and not just multiple sclerosis. I mean, there are other conditions like Parkinson's and um, that have also been suggested that maybe uric acid is playing a protective role. And that's, uh, I mean, it's, it's certainly an interesting area of research. I think there's, there's some evidence, you know, that points to the role of uric acid in and protecting the nervous system or um, the myelin sheath or what have you. It's all, I think, pretty uh, preliminary. And, and uh, I mean, there was an interesting study that uh, gave, wrote, basically gave inosine to up people's uric acid levels who had MS. Um, and it, I mean, I don't think the results were necessarily uh, mind blowing, but you know, over a short period of time, I think it's, it's hard to expect too much, but it did seem like it was having some positive effects. But, you know, I also think you need to consider that maybe uh, there are certain types of, of uh, basically like oxidative or even nitritative uh, stress that might break down uric acid. So it's worth considering that, you know, uric acid might be protective against MS, but it also might be that basically the conditions that, that uh, lead to MS break down uric acid in the body. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, stay unbiased and consider both of those possibilities, but it's definitely an interesting area of research. Hey, Morgan, along those lines with like the oxidative stress, I was reading another study you had posted. Like folks, you got to check out his, his Twitter page if you don't. He's got a lot of stuff on there. But um, you, you were talking about kind of like uh, folks with high oxidative stress um, also have are associated with high levels of uric acid. And uh, so are are what we're looking at here, is that kind of like a chicken or an egg type of thing where it's not necessarily the uric acid being high that the problem is, but it's the, the chronic high oxidative stress that's the problem, which is resulting in the high uric acid? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the theory that I'm going with. And I think that um, certainly the evidence that I've looked at, I think raises some serious doubts that it's uric acid actually contributing to those to those conditions. And I think there's some pretty good, at least preliminary evidence based on, you know, you can give people diabetes, certain diabetes medications. Um, so like metformin or, or some of the PPAR agonists and see uric acid levels rise even when, you know, weight doesn't change. And then I think there's some, uh, not perfect studies, but studies out there suggesting that the insulin might, uh, directly contribute to higher uric acid levels. So I think that sort of points to, yeah, the, if you're talking about chicken and egg, it's, it's probably uh, the oxidative stress and insulin resistance first followed by the uric acid. Uh, Morgan, there are uh, generally three sort of dietary components that, 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 that certainly associate with gout and, and perhaps via uric acid. One would be uh, fructose, alcohol seems to play a role 
And then a lot of people will say high purine rich food, particularly things like, you know, red meats and stuff like that. What are your thoughts regarding those things? I know you, you'd had some comments on fructose. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how those, those relationships may or may not have an impact on uric acid or the, the problems that we, we associate with uric acid? Sure. I mean, I think in general, uh, the, the sort of role of purines doesn't seem like it's that significant in general to, to me. And I mean, there might be like conditions where uh, the slight effect that it has can tip you over the edge to, to gout. But just by and large, I think the point that I was ultimately hoping to make was that maybe we should be sort of looking at uric acid levels as an indicator of, of metabolic kind of disease or ill health and target what ultimately might be contributing to that. So take kind of take it a step back. And I think that, yeah, fructose, um, while definitely playing a role in, in higher, you know, uric acid levels in some context, isn't probably the main villain that we can, you know, point to, or even alcohol. I think that there are um, plenty of dietary, uh, you know, basically ways of eating that could contribute to sort of poor metabolic health that doesn't require you to eat a whole lot of fructose or, or, uh, you know, drink a lot of alcohol. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, there's a lot of people that get, you know, you, you could, you could, you could design a quite a few diets that are poor and, and, uh, you know, you're going to have some metabolic compromise with that. What, um, you know, this is what diseases, you know, we, a lot of people will, will use uric acid levels as a marker for, you know, I guess chronic inflammation. And I guess you're, you're, you're sort of positing that, you know, it's a, it's a consequence of inflammation and, and the body is using it possibly to mitigate some of that inflammation. Um, what other evidence out there with regard to other, I mean, what does the traditional approach tell us about uric acid and disease? What are we, what are we typically hearing? And uh, what are some of the studies you've looked at that, that sort of counter that? I know, I know we kind of touched on this, but if you've got some more information, it'd be great. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty, pretty common. And since I've kind of gotten curious about uric acid, I've, I've looked into things and it still seems like, it's pretty common to hear folks saying like, well, if you have gout or if you have high uric acid, you know, um, cut the alcohol, cut the meat, cut the sugar, you know. And I think that there are, are at least to the second point, there are a good number of studies suggesting that, you know, um, you, can, you can see metabolic improvements with high meat, high red meat, you know, and high purine diets that are ultimately, you know, improving the metabolic health of the person who's eating it. And ultimately that seem, that can kind of uh, lead to lower uric acid levels. Um, I think that there's, there's also an interesting idea that I came across and I have a short thread somewhere on my Twitter that basically salt is a, is a factor that I don't hear about a whole lot when it comes to uric acid, but it, it seems like uh, eating more salt can lower uric acid levels and, and eating less salt can raise uric acid levels. And, you know, I think it would be worth looking at studies in, in various different contexts before we start saying like, if you have gout, eat a bunch of salt, cause that might not work for everybody. Um, but I certainly think it's something that I, I think should be, you know, discussed more. Um, and then I also, you know, there's, I think there's, um, for whatever, uh, for whatever it's worth, 
there does seem to be some evidence that that uh, dairy dairy products, um, you know, everything from uh, milk to just whey protein itself can also lower uric acid levels. I mean, I think uh, one of the studies I came across found that, I, and I forget the form of dairy they were using, but it was, you know, milk or cottage cheese or something compared to tofu. Um, and I think they they whether they were expecting this or not, found that the tofu raised uric acid levels uh, after the meal. So just for, you know, the short time after the meal and the dairy product basically did the opposite. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, I'm, I'm, I am, I'll, I'll just say that I'm very, I'm very biased. I'm a pro meat guy. I'm a crazy guy that eats nothing but meat. And, you know, as bizarre as that is, but, you know, in, in my, my practical experience and the experience of literally thousands of people I've interacted with, I've seen that when people eat a lot of meat, they don't get gout. Uh, if anything, it goes away if they had pre-existing gout. Uh, but when they cut out sugar and when they cut out, when they cut out a lot of fructose and alcohol, it, it does seem to help. And, and, and it may not be that it's via, directly via uric acid, there's maybe some other form of inflammatory stuff going on that leads to gout. Let me, you know, the, the thing we talked about with, and I see this over and over again, I mean, I think cholesterol can arguably fall in that category where we see an elevation of cholesterol and we immediately impugn that uh, as causative for disease and where it may be a marker of, or it may be a, a necessary but incomplete component for precipitating, you know, we typically associate cholesterol with atherosclerotic disease. And then there's many people argue that we have to have vascular damage, inflammation, perhaps hyperinsulinemia, all those things must be in place before that becomes uh, problematic. And I see a similar analogy perhaps with uric acid and gout. You know, it may not be the uric acid by itself, although it can contribute, and that uric acid is there for a reason. We just don't, you know, I, I find it hard to believe that our body makes substances on a regular basis that are there to kill us. Right. And it's, yeah. It sense to me. I mean, and especially, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that really got me curious about this is you know, you look at uric acid and, and about 90% of it is basically reabsorbed in the kidneys. Um, and I mean, so if, if it's supposedly some, you know, waste product that doesn't really serve a, a good function, why would we be, why would our body seem like it's trying to keep it? Um, and then, I mean, similarly, yeah, over the millions of years that we basically evolved this uh, dysfunctional enzyme that now we can't break down uric acid like most other animals. It just seems like whatever, you know, the reason is there's some reason why we would have uric acid levels around. And I, yeah, I think you could, you could raise the same questions about, you know, um, why would we have, you know, high cholesterol? Um, and I think they may not have the same answers, but you know, they're both good questions. You had mentioned uh, homocysteine a little bit ago, kind of in passing, um, yeah. kind of being in a similar category. Can you elaborate a little bit on on that? Are you seeing similar things with uric acid and homocysteine, or have you delved into that much? Just a yeah, just a little bit. I can't, uh, you know, dive into it too much, but I do know that there's. I mean, obviously, homocysteine has has been kind of impugned in the past as like it's associated with cardiovascular disease. Therefore, it probably causes cardiovascular disease, or that was what a lot of people said. And I think the the sort of opinions on that waned a lot when you started uh, basically seeing these studies where they, you know, give people high doses of of these B vitamins, like because B twelve, B six, folic acid, those can all play a role in lowering uh, homocysteine. And it didn't seem like 
it had that substantial, you know, cardio protective effect that you would expect if homocysteine was, was this, you know, villain. And so I think it's more, you need to consider like, why is homocysteine being raised in the first place? And maybe that is the factor that's contributing to cardiovascular disease. Yeah. I mean, I see this over and over again, having been, you know, in the medical business for decades now, and I see, you know, and and I've I've become more acutely aware of this in the last few years as I kind of observe this stuff. But I mean, it seems like we get some sort of new biomarker, which we incompletely understand it's associated with some disease and, and therefore we always attribute, you know, this is a problem because it's associated with disease and there we have to do whatever we can to lower this when this may be a protective response to the underlying disease problem. Do we have any, and I don't know if you're going to be the best person to answer this question, but I just wonder if we've got any really good, reliable markers of what's, what's actually causative versus what's actually reactive. And, and I, I just, you know, for me, I look at it and I, I, can, I can sort of see big picture things like, you know, if you've got a lot of visceral adiposity or something like that, I can say, yeah, you're probably dealing with inflammation and that's probably there. And if that goes away, that's generally a pretty good sign behind it. But when, it starts, when we start getting into all these various lab markers and God knows there's hundreds of thousands of them now that you can measure just about anything in the world. And, you know, I, I just have a really hard time trying to figure out, uh, you know, the more I learn, the more I realize the less that I know, but more importantly, the less that we know. I mean, I think we've got so much uh, you know, so much to do to figure this stuff out. I'm not even sure we'll be able to. What are your thoughts on any of that stuff? Yeah, I mean, certainly, yeah, biomarkers are of interest to mine, but I think that as you dig into them, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I have a, a post on on my blog somewhere that basically is called There Is No Perfect Biomarker. I mean, any any biomarker that you find, you're going to find a good handful of times when it goes in supposedly the bad or, you know, worse direction and you don't see worse outcomes or you see it go in the supposedly good direction and you don't see good outcomes. Um, I think, I think it's, you know, pretty difficult with, with, I mean, there's issues with all of them. Um, I mean, even C reactive protein, which I think is generally a pretty good uh, predictor of, of heart disease, it's not, it's not, I don't think actually what's driving um, the heart disease. I don't think CRP itself is causing the damage. So, I mean, I think that leads to situations where it, it could be imperfect and it could be reflective of, of other things that are going on. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know that, uh, that biomarkers should be the end all be all, maybe, you know, constellations of biomarkers, but, um, but yeah. Yeah, there's, you know, the thing with C-reactive protein, you know, it, it's, it's an acute phase reactant and it can, it can change for anything. You know, if you have a hard workout, it can be elevated for several days or a week or more. You got anything going on. So it's, I always, I tell people if you have a very low C-reactive protein, you know, you know high sensitivity theorepectin, 0.5, under, under 1, 0.5, that's a pretty good indicator that you don't have a lot of inflammation going on. But if it's high, it can be high for a lot of reasons, not always a reason to be concerned, but you need to, you need to delve more, more. I mean, it could be, but it, you need to delve more into the clinical stuff. Let me kind of veer out, kind of taking a, a more of a, a macroscopic look at this point, because you're, you know, you, you do uh, nutrition. Um, are you, are you applying nutrition? Are you finding, because here's the thing with all these biomarkers, the nice thing about biomarkers and, and I'm being the devil, devil's advocate, maybe the bad thing about biomarkers is they're easy to manipulate with drugs. And so we have, 
you know, we got a biomarker we think is associated with disease. We can put make a drug that can lower that biomarker. And then the outcome, and it seems like the outcomes show some small improvement. And then that's touted as this wonder miracle when, when probably we're missing the boat on a lot of these things. I see that, I see that sort of theme repeated over and over again. But how do you find that nutrition impacts people you're working with? You know, are you, are you finding much, much usage for that? And what kind of nutritional strategy do you employ? I mean, I have, I have my beliefs, but we all have different beliefs. So let's talk about what your, what your thoughts are, what your findings are there. Yeah, well, I think I, um, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily have one particular way of eating that I, that I apply or that I at least recommend to people. Um, I think there are a lot of factors to consider and, you know, chief among them for me at least is how willing it, you know, how willing is the person to, to implement this and how, you know, readily can they find that it, it, uh, basically fits into their, to their life and their lifestyle. Um, and I, I guess, you know, I feel like that's something that maybe not, not everybody, uh, um, you know, ha- takes, takes into, con- uh, you know, consideration, but I, I think, um, you know, I'm around a lot of folks who are of lower income and I think, you know, there's, there has to be this consideration of like, not everyone has the, has the luxury or even the willingness to implement certain, certain diets. And so, you know, I realize this is kind of a, a bit of a dodge, but yeah, I don't, I don't just have one, one diet or way of eating that I recommend. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Unamate by a brand named Unicity. This sponsor is unique. It has a personal story behind it. In 2015, I started using the tea Yerba Mate. I liked it for its calm sense of alertness that it provided versus kind of the more jittery alertness that you could get from uh, more traditional caffeine sources. I even used it in 2015 at the end of the year in route to breaking the 100-mile American record at the Desert Solstice Track Invitational. The only hiccup that I have had with using Yerba Mate in training and racing has kind of been a logistical hiccup. It, I usually had to either kind of pre-make the Yerba Mate as like a hot tea or buy it in a can, which a lot of times the cans you would find had been sweetened with sugar and other things. Uh, so I was always kind of on the lookout of trying to maybe make that process a little more efficient. So after interviewing Dr. Ben Bickman for episode 13 of HPO, he had discovered that I was a fan of Yerba Mate in training and races, and uh, he's actually been studying some of the effects of Yerba Mate and connected me with a product called Unamate, which makes kind of an instant single-serving package of the tea. With, with these single-serving packs, I, I can easily kind of prepare on the fly, even during a race or during a training run, without having to go through all the kind of logistic steps of preparing the tea ahead of time or bringing a can full of something along with me and i actually even used it at the tunnel hill 100 mile this last fall where i ran the the fastest recorded 100 mile or on a trail as well as the fastest 100 mile or outright during the year for 2018 um so needless to say i'm behind the product if you'd like to try it out please head over to unicity.com forward slash hpo 
That's U-N-I-C-I-T-Y dot com forward slash H-P-O to get $3 off a 7-pack or $10 off a 30-pack of Unimate. Thanks again. Now, back to the show. I mean, that's an important point when you bring up low income because there's a lot of, you know, I mean, that's the reality for many people. And I mean, if, if you're seeing them, they came to you for a reason, you know, theoretically, they're at least want to change something or someone told them they had to come to see you and forcing them to change for whatever reason. But what do you, I mean, what is the problem we have with, with, the, with the folks with lower income with, with food? I mean, is it, is it, is it, uh, you know, no access to good food? Is the prices too much? Is it, is it just a, uh, is there pressure to eat a certain way? What are you, what are you seeing repeatedly in that population? Um, yeah, well, I don't know that I'm necessarily the best the best person to to speak to this, but I mean, yeah, I do think uh, there is, you know, I think the the idea of of food deserts get, gets brought up sometimes, but I think the more important issue that that needs to be brought up is I think the term is food swamp, which is basically, you know, you're surrounded by these uh, food establishments, you know, your McDonald's and what have you, um, that make it really easy to get convenient, uh, food that maybe isn't that, isn't that great for you. Um, and so, I mean, I, yeah, I think there's, there's this, uh, basically unfamiliarity with, with, uh, ways of, of eating that are easy and that are healthier than the ways that might be, you know, available to the, to a lot of folks. Hey, Morgan, so you, I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, you know, you were traditionally trained as a dietitian or a nutritionist, dietitian, dietitian, right? Well, I had more of a sort of research focus in my education. Okay. Um, so certainly I was, I was around a lot of people who went on to become dietitians or who are on their way to becoming dietitians, but um, more of my interest was, was in the research kind of, piece. What are you finding? You, know, you talk about food swamps, you know, we, I mean, we can all envision the Popeye's chicken and the McDonald's and the Taco Bell and all that crap that's everywhere. What do you, what do you consider to be suboptimal foods? You know, or, you know, my, you know, I've got my opinions. I think some of it's just flat out garbage poison for us, but what are your thoughts on what we should be avoiding in the diet? Uh, huh. Well, I think it's a, I think that's a complicated uh, question because, you know, there are, there are certainly things that I think are, are worth avoiding. And if we want to, you know, swing over to the fast food route, I mean, I certainly think sugar sweetened beverages, I'm not a fan of, I think that, you know, the fries and the potato chips, as much as I, I, will admit that I like really enjoy those foods. I don't think they're very good. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have, a, I don't have a, uh, a easy, quick answer to that, to that question. I think, I think with a lot of it too, context is so important. So it's hard to just like put a blanket statement on that. But mm-hmm. I mean, along these same lines, I want to just go back to the beginning when you kind of gave your, your response about, you know, what dietary uh, advice do you promote or do you think is kind of like the go-to? And, and you said, well, you know, 
It has. It depends a lot. And I, I, I was like secretly celebrating inside my head when you said that, because my, my first thought was this person walking into a clinic and, uh, you know, someone giving them dietary advice and the person getting the advice thinking in their head, well, there's like a 99% chance I'm not going to do this. <laughs> so like in that context, that person's just not ready for whatever dietary intervention that was going to be placed on if there's a, the almost, almost a complete entire uh, failure potential there. So like, I guess my question would be then like, so if you have someone come in and say, Hey, I, I need help with my nutrition. How do you kind of suss out what, uh, like what is going to be a sustainable and uh, doable, I guess is a better way to say it, a doable process for a specific person. Do you have like questions and things that you ask them to kind of get to the root of like where their preferences lie? Well, I should probably point out that I don't, I don't do any one-on-one -on -one, uh, really consultations at this point. Um, so if anything, I'm, I'm passing information to a class of, of people. Um, so I'll just, I'll put that out at the forefront. Um, but I, I mean, I, yeah, I do think that uh, there's certainly there, there are cultural considerations. There are uh, what people are, you know, familiar with. Um, and I think there's also a piece of, uh, of, you know, we have a lot of in sort of increasing access to all these different dietary opinions out there. And I think one of the things and what can be sometimes a barrier is people get into their heads, you know, what is, what is good or what is bad. I mean, I think something that I, I see frequently and I, I, this might be controversial, but I'll, I'll bring it up as an example because it's what I think is that a lot of folks who maybe have, uh, you know, they drink soda or they drink things that are similar to soda. Uh, they want to stop drinking it because they're aware that this is something that I probably shouldn't be drinking or, you know, have been told that. Um, and they, they have trouble basically getting, getting rid of it. And I've talked to people who say like, but I want, I don't want to switch to, you know, diet soda because that's worse. Um, you know, at like, the artificial sweeteners, I've heard that those are worse for me. And at least in my opinion, and again, I realize this is controversial, that's not the case. I think that uh, for many people, it, it is a viable option to switch to diet soda and either ultimately, you know, uh, wean from there or just that, you know, accept that that is a better alternative. Um, but I think that the, so there's this education piece where people get into their heads these ideas about like, what can I do? But what and what should I do? Um. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, feel free to pass on this if you don't have any any insight. But you know, I find that an interesting thing too with like the whole artificial sweetener um, stuff because uh, you know I would say like years ago when I started paying closer attention to health, you know, I read somewhere okay, artificial sweeteners are bad for you for whatever reason, and you know, I just kind of had that ingrained in my brain that that's something you stay away from. And uh, I think it was, I think it was actually Lane Norton was saying something like they've done more studies on artificial sweeteners than almost anything. And it's like, it's a dosage thing where like in order to get some of these negative response, you have to have just an absurd amount where you wouldn't even actually be able to ingest that much. Uh, is that kind of what you're seeing too? Or is there like still reason to kind of stay I guess, diligent about taking a look at these? Are there potential things that could pop up that we don't know about in relation to artificial sweeteners? 
Sure. And I think, you know, wanting to, to take the precautionary principle, like I don't judge anybody who feels the need to do that. I certainly don't include artificial sweeteners in my, in my diet or lifestyle. And I also think, you know, there's some, uh, you know, you group all of them together as if they're just one thing, but that's, that's very much not the case. There are numerous types of, of uh, non-nutritive sweeteners. And I think, you know, does sucralose have the same effect as aspartame, which, you know, does that have the same effect as, uh, you know, stevia or, or any, you know, any and so on and so forth. And I think at least in my opinion, uh, you know, I remember like, what was it? Pepsi a while back switched. They were, they switched from aspartame to sucralose because I think aspartame had the worst reputation and in my opinion, sucralose doesn't have as much research behind it. Um, whereas, I, yeah, I feel like there have been a lot of studies on aspartame that, um, at least in the short term, suggest that it's safe. And I, I don't know as much has been done with sucralose. But anyway, my point just being that, yeah, I think um, you kind of have to separate them. And, and I do think that, um, yeah, the dosage is also probably something to consider. What do you, uh, you know, just to go back to the uric acid stuff, because I know that's kind of initially what, what a lot of people are going to be really interested in. You know, is there anything, any other studies that you want to point out that, that sort of, I would guess, support your hypothesis that uric acid is a result of inflammation rather than a cause? Or what are the studies out there that you, you might want to refer us to or, or, or relationships that you saw? Hmm. Yeah. Um... Well, I do think that it's, you know, pretty interesting that you can see basically somebody with, with a lot of, you know, basically visceral adiposity or belly fat. Um, and they, if they go on a, basically a diet that leads them to lose a lot of that weight, you will pretty frequently see uric acid levels rise. And I think that's a really common uh, common advice that's given to people is, you know, um, more so than avoiding, you know, purines or red meat or what have you. If you have a lot of, of you know, visceral fat, that, that trying to lose some of that is probably the best strategy to take. And I think, uh, you know, that you, you basically we'll see a drop in, in uh, oxidative stress and, you know, markers of inflammation along with the drop in uric acid. And so again, that's indirect evidence at least. Um, but I think that's, you know, another piece of piece of the, I don't know, puzzle. So you're saying that, so when people are obese, you know, particularly with belly fat or visceral fat and they lose that, we see a transient elevation in uric acid, or is that something that hangs around longer? So I guess, there, and there's some studies that, that reveal that, is that correct? Uh, so when you say transiently, you mean like first few days? Cause I do think in the long run it drops, but. Yeah, I don't know. I, like I said, I don't know what the, what the uh, I know we, talk, we talked about a study about fasting and we see the same thing with cholesterol. You fast for a week, your cholesterol goes mm -hmm. up something like 50 to 70% in some cases. And we're seeing losing belly fat showing an increase in uric acid as well. And so your, your, your thought is by reducing that inflammatory state that's associated mm -hmm. with visceral fat, uric acid levels are not being catabolized. You know, 
catabolized as much. Is that, is that kind of what I'm getting? Yeah. And I guess I would, I would think of it as the, you know, there's sort of this, uh, basically divergent effect in that case. So if you're outright fasting, obviously you're going to quickly see ketone levels rise. Um, and that, that basically will have some, at least for a short time effect on your uric acid levels where ultimately they rise. Um, and then separately from that, we could think of the drop in, in basically uh, body fat as having a positive effect. So lower or at least lowering uric acid, whether that's positive or not. Um, and so what I, I guess point being that um, if you're, if you're losing that belly fat in a way that basically your ketone levels aren't rising really high, that over the, you know, over time, you'll see the uric acid levels drop. And I think, you know, one of those uh, studies that I came across from like the twenties or thirties uh, basically found that, you know, yeah, outright fasting caused uric acid levels to rise, uh, eating cream. So just, you know, straight heavy cream kept those uric acid levels rise, but uh, basically eating, eating some protein could cause those uric acid levels to drop back down at least somewhat. Uh, so I think what they said was they had some guy who was eating nothing. And over the course of several days, his uric acid levels rose. And then they had him eat, and I think it was the equivalent of, you know, 70 egg whites. And they found that his uric acid levels started to drop back down again. Um, so. Yeah, no, I just, because I, and I wasn't sure if you're going to know the answer. So I just did a quick little search myself to check this out. But something I also find, and I see this with so many of these serum biomarkers that we have so much faith in, is diurnal variation. Are you aware of any diurnal variation, like hour to hour variation in your serum uric acid levels? Have you come across that? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't honestly remember, but I do think Another thing to think about is seasonal variation, which at least in some studies does seem to occur. So I think, yeah, there could be a day-to-day -day variation as there is with a lot of things. But uh, interestingly, from you know winter to summer, you often see uric acid levels uh, change, I think. And it's sort of it's counterintuitive because you, it seems like gout episodes tend to rise in the winter, but if anything, studies show that uric acid levels are higher in the summer and not by a whole lot. I mean, we're not talking about levels doubling, but just if you look at a variation, it tends to be higher in the summer than the winter. Um, and I think, you know, there's, that's, that's one reason why if you look at studies or if you look at just anecdotes where people are, are, you know, trying to figure, trying to look at the effect of some diet on their, uric acid levels that it's important to consider the season because I think that can be a factor. Yeah, I just pulled up this study out of the journal Clinical Pathology from 1992 and they were looking at day to day, you know, hourly variations, diurnal variations in uric acid levels and they were showing about a 30% decrease from morning to evening. So a morning, a morning uric acid level is going to be 30% higher than a, an evening uric acid level, which I think, you know, again, this, this is a whole thing. It's like, when did you take it? What was going on? Right. What time of the year it was, what temperature was it? You know, there's all these things that go into these different markers and that's one. one of yeah. And then you, yeah, you brought up when we were talking about CD reactive protein that, a you know, bout of exercise can, can impact that. And you see the same thing with uric acid. I mean, I uh, have, you know, seen a number of studies where they look at uh, people who, run you know 
uh, marathons or, or things like that. Um, and at the end of the, basically the end of the race, they found that their uric acid levels have, have risen a lot. And that's, I mean, it's not just, but it's not just that extreme. I mean, there are uh, less, less intense exercises there. You also find that by the end of the exercise, your uric acid levels are higher. And again, I mean, I think if you're thinking about uric acid as something that your body wants to, you know, uh, sort of use as like a homeostatic kind of managing of excess oxidative stress levels, it might make sense that you're seeing it in those contexts because, uh, you know, that would be that would be a time where you are seeing oxidative stress. I mean, doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad, but that is a time where oxidative stress levels are rising. So I guess at the end of the day, the take-home lesson might be that, except in the cases of acute gout, we may want to just not mess with uric acid levels and let them do what they're supposed to do to protect us. You know, I think that's, you know, I think that's kind of what I'm getting at. What do you think? Would you agree with that statement? Sure. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think ultimately it would just be to, to maybe stay curious about what is the role of gout um, you know, what importance does it play in both positively and negatively? And just not assume that we know everything there is to know yet. Yeah, I mean, I hear, I, particularly in the nutrition circles, particularly, oh, some of the camps that, that sort of promote a certain way of eating will tell us that the nutrition science is settled and we know what we need to know. And uh, the, the evidence is overwhelming that we should all eat a certain way. And I, I, I just kind of, sit there and scratch my head and say, wait a minute, you know, say the science is settled. There's a very unscientific statement in my mind. You know, I think we're, we're open to learn a lot more. I think we still have lots, lots more to learn. So anyway, Morgan, thank you so much for coming on. Um, is there anything you wanted to talk about? We didn't get a chance to talk to. And if not, let us know how to find out more about you. If you're interested in having people pester you on Twitter and other places, you know, that and interact. Cause I think this is some fascinating stuff. And I think it's, it's interesting to have people, you know, just contributing to the conversation because there's a lot of smart people out there and we, we, there's a, the more eyes that are on this stuff and the more different perspectives, I think we can all learn something from it. Yeah, sure. I, uh, you know, follow me on Twitter. I would say that's, if you want to get more, more of my brain, uh, that would be the place to go. I do have a blog, which you can find the link to on my Twitter Many of the things on it at this point, I'm not sure I can vouch for because I think I'm constantly evolving in my, in my viewpoints, but you know, whatever, feel free to check it out. Um, and uh, yeah, that would be the, that would be the main, you know, social media kind of stuff to look for. Yeah. I mean, we're all evol evolving. The only thing I can say with hundred percent certainty is I'm wrong on something. I don't know what that is yet, but I, I guarantee that's the case. Zach, any last words? Yeah, I've actually got one more question for you, Morgan. Sorry, <laughs> you, you brought up your blog, which for the, for the listeners, if you want to check out, it's thehealthhammer.wordpress.com. Um, and one of the more recent posts you put had to do with nitrates. And I have a kind of a question with nitrates. And I think when the, years ago, like this kind of fear mounted about nitrates. And I think it was mostly due to their association with cured meats like bacon. So then we even saw the marketplace kind of respond to that and start producing nitrate-free bacon and like, nitrate free like sausages and things like that and then a counter swing came and they're like well wait a second there's tons of nitrates more nitrates in fact in like leafy vegetables which you know we all know are good for us so is that something is nitrate something that we should be 
conscious of or aware of when we're purchasing foods or is it something that is 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 not really an issue and if this is such a complicated answer that we needed to say hey go read the blog post <laughs> that's fine too <laughs> yeah well i certainly have a lot to say about nitrate um i think that i'm i'm pretty drawn to you know controversial subjects like uric acid and like nitrate yeah they're the Nitrate thing was based on basically the, so the thing up on my blog is, is a portion of my master's thesis that I wrote um, on nitrate because I got, I got really interested in that um, and basically did a lot of, a lot of research on that. So it's hard to condense, uh, it's hard to condense that because I think I could just go on and on. Um, I think it's, you know, funny to hear people talk about the, swing to kind of nitrate free meats because at some point uh i've found at least in the united states that that's a lie um the idea of nitrate free bacon for example is totally deceptive i mean that's you're not a, i mean it's it's there is a law that requires you to have some sort of nitrate or nitrite in bacon and so the way they get around that is they don't add the nitrate to it they add basically a processed you know celery which is has a lot of nitrate in it um or something like that um so but uh, yeah i think i really dug into that and i wanted to learn about the controversy around it and and how much it felt like, like you know this is uh this is something that is is healthy or is unhealthy or you know so on and so forth um, and I think more interesting than the health effects was even just the people's, what people think about nitrate, because um, part of what I did was to basically talked, uh, well, not talked, but did surveys of, of registered dietitians um, and talk, you know, so basically did this to several hundred dietitians and found that there are some really interesting viewpoints on nitrate that are maybe not always accurate. Um, I think that they're, there's this uh, basically still this conception of nitrate as like something that is that is bad and that is in processed meat, and in, I would say that uh, that is at the very least not fully accurate. Are you how you know is relatively younger guy or at least if you're not a younger guy you look damn young so I don't know like I said. You know, you're probably in amongst some of the people that are just just coming into diet, you know, nutrition, and, and are just recently graduates and, and and that sort of situation. What is your perception? Is there some receptivity for the change of the paradigm, or do you feel that everybody's kind of just, you know, sticking to the 1980s nutrition? Or where where, where are your th thoughts at as where things are heading in, in in that realm? Well, yeah. Well, first of all, I'm 50 years old, so thank you for saying I look young. Uh, no, uh, yeah, so I think as far as the, I think there's a lot of basically really forward-thinking people, younger people in the nutrition, you know, world. Um, I think it's certainly, there's certainly a lot of different viewpoints, and I wonder how much of that is like, we now have the internet where uh, the, basically your main, your main source for things can either be directly the, the research that uh, is being done on certain things, or people's, you know, synthesis of that, of that research. Um, but yeah, I think, 
more so than any one kind of ideology there there seems like there's a lot of uh a lot of people who are swinging to basically like this is the this is the diet or these are the opinions that i have um and it may not necessarily fit with what i'm being taught but like this is what i believe in um and i think that's not necessarily a bad thing i think at least from my perspective um it seems like a lot of people are are willing to look into things for themselves that's good to hear anyway keep an open mind you can what are some people i think somebody said something like uh, uh be open to everything but be attached to nothing you know i think that's a pretty uh Nice, nice quote I heard. All right, Zach, what else? We good? Yeah, I think that that, that should do it. So folks, uh, go over to Twitter, check out uh, Morgan at, at Morgan uh, Fifner, and then his blog is thehealthhammer.wordpress.com. Both of those will be linked in the show notes. But thanks for coming on, Morgan. It was great to have you and share your insights. Yeah, never thought I would end up on a podcast because of a Twitter thread about uric acid. <laughs> you never know, man. I'll tell you, there's a lot of things I never thought I'd be doing either, but the world's a funny place. <laughs> All righty. Thanks a bunch. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.